today. So it's Palm Sunday. Um, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 21. Uh, Sue took the, uh, the story from Luke. We're going to read quickly from Matthew 21. If you haven't got your Bibles, it's going to come up on the screen behind me as well. So, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, says the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. You know, I think the last time that I was due to speak on anywhere on Palm Sunday, it got snowed off. Snowed off. It, was, uh, it fell towards the end of March, and the church contacted me the day before to say, don't worry, we've seen the forecast. We, we don't have to cancel our services. People live within walking distance. Prepare, it will go ahead. So... That night it snowed and it snowed and the next morning I got a phone call to say, I'm very sorry but we're going to have to cancel. Um, so that message didn't get used until, no, I took it as a sign that you know that one wasn't meant to be heard so that one was consigned to the, um, could do better. Um, but I do think it can be quite difficult to find the right tone for messages on Palm Sunday. Because um, as we think about the events of 2,000 years ago, it's impossible to think about that Sunday without the events that followed, isn't it? Because we know it, we know the story, we know how the story ends. Um, uh, Phil Miles once said, I think we were talking about doing a Good Friday service, and he's like, well, could we do, um, you know the song, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High? And he got to the chorus, he goes, you came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, my dead to pay, from the cross to the grave. And I said... But you can't sing, you can't give the ending away on Good Friday. I was like, I'm sorry, but we already know. <laughs> but just try to put yourself back in the suburbs of Jerusalem, not knowing about what was to come. Uh, and, you know, I tried to think of, a, of a, an illustration, a story that starts off with this kind of hope, this belief that someone's going to come in and going to change something, and then seemingly it all goes wrong. And... When I spoke a few weeks ago from Hebrews 3, I, I used an illustration from football. And I'm afraid I've got to go back to football again. So I'm sorry if you don't like football, but you don't need to know anything about football to follow it. So we're not going back to Jerusalem. We're going back to 1989. Yeah? Remember 1989? Don't not shake your head. You were there. Um, Manchester United. Manchester United hadn't won the league for 22 years. I was expecting the Liverpool fans to cheer at that. <laughs> Their manager was Alex Ferguson. He'd arrived and he'd been in charge for about three years, but they'd won nothing. This was a big club, but seemingly going nowhere. 
And then it was announced someone, a man called Michael Knighton. You remember that Man United fans? Michael Knight. It sounds like he should be in a film, doesn't he? Michael Knighton. Um, he was going to come in and he was going to buy the club. He was going to invest money and make them great again. And he was announced with great fanfare. The start of the season, he ran on the pitch, juggling football, dribbling. TV cameras were there. He was the man to bring the good times back. Only he wasn't, because he never actually bought the club. It didn't go through. I think he promised more than he could deliver. And a few years later, he did buy a club called United, but it was Carlisle United instead. And if you know anything about football, they're nothing like Manchester United. But back to Jerusalem. Imagine the excitement, the anticipation. You know, it would have been easy, wouldn't it, for the disciples maybe to start thinking, that believing maybe that Jesus, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, you know, this was the earthly king that the people of the Jews have been waiting that the Jewish people have been waiting for you know this was Jesus who had seen calm the seas he'd raised people from the dead and surely now that same power and you know he was going to use that to kick the Romans out of the holy city he was going to put those people in the Sanhedrin the religious the political leaders he'd get them in a spin as well he'd stop them using the power to boss people around and the disciples maybe were feeling pretty good about themselves on Palm Sunday we picked the winner here lads we were chosen, we did well here. It seemed that the whole city was honouring Jesus and they were going to take him to the throne of David. But we know, don't we, that that didn't last. It didn't last. The cheering crowds of Sunday turned into the jeering crowds of Friday who cried, crucify him. The same people that sang Hosanna to the son of David cried away with him at the end of that same week. You know, yesterday... We took some of the youth to a football match. I'm sorry, we're back to football again. You'll learn. Um, But we took some to a football match. We took them to Aston Villa versus Bristol City. A crowd of 41,418. We had a debate whether they're the biggest club in the Midlands or not. Andre was very vocal saying he goes on Premier League status, not, not size of crowd. But, you know, when you're in a crowd that big, it's easy to get drawn into the momentum and the flow, isn't it? When you're in a crowd that big, you know, I'm not a Villa fan. I'm a humble Warsaw fan. We need your prayers. <laughs> but, you know, in that situation, you find yourself cheering with a crowd, don't you? You clap along when they clap along. You choose carefully which songs you sing along with. But imagine the other side. If you're on the other side of that, though, you're the focus of the attention, the adulation of nearly... 40,000 people, of course, the Bristol brought their fans as well. You know, how would you feel being on the receiving end of the adulation? Would you be able to stay focused on what you were there for, on your mission? Or do you think, actually, would, you risk, would there be the risk that you could be swayed by the crowd? When you arrived in Jerusalem, how did Jesus remain unswayed by the crowd? How did he remain focused on his mission? You know, the story of Jesus, it's full of encounters with crowds, isn't it? So let's go back to the very start, to Luke chapter 2, the birth of Jesus. So it might not be snow, but we'll go back to Christmas. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued the decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went on their own, to their own town, to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee 
to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning that they, what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Jesus was born into a crowded place. We know from that story so well that Bethlehem was full. There were no rooms available because of the crowds and so he was born in the stable. The Son of God came to earth and he went largely unnoticed by the crowds. He took another crowd, he took a crowd of angels, a great company of the heavenly hosts, it says, to announce to his arrival to the shepherds. And it was this group, group of outsiders to the crowds, they were out in the fields, who came to worship the newborn king, recognising who he was. But it wasn't only the shepherds, was it? It was the magi, or the wise men. You know, we're not told how God caused the Magi to know that the king of the Jews had been born, only that he gave him a sign of the star in the east. You know, both the Hebrew and Greek words for star were used to represent back then uh, any brilliance or radiance uh, of light. And very early in the Old Testament, the Messiah is spoken of as of a star that shall come forth from David. Sorry, from Jacob in Numbers 24. And at the end of the New Testament... He refers to himself as the bright morning star. The Magi saw the glory of God, blazing as if it were a star, visible to their eyes. It was intended for their eyes, and then they set out after it. Do you ever wonder that the Magi saw this brilliant light from miles away and saw it and had to respond? But the crowds in Bethlehem, they didn't see it. Just as the pillar of cloud gave light to Israel, but darkness to Egypt, only the eyes of the Magi were opened to see that great light over Bethlehem. You know, we often say, don't we, and you hear it in nativities, we have followed the star, we have come to see the baby. <laughs> but in fact, when they got to, to where the star had guided them, they had to inquire where Jesus was born. So actually, were they following it, or did they see it and respond to it? They saw a star in the east, but actually, what evidence is there that they continued to follow it when it led them to Jerusalem? It wasn't until they were told of the prophesied birthplace of the Messiah that the star we read reappeared and guided them to the exact place where Jesus was. The travellers came from the east with one purpose, to find the one born the King of the Jews and to worship him. See, when Jesus came to earth, the crowds around failed to recognise who he was. 
it was only those to whom it was revealed that really knew what was going on and who this baby was. And now 33 years later, Jesus had taught thousands of people, crowds had followed him around, but did they really know who he was still? In Matthew 16, we read the following account. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked them. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. See, despite his teachings, despite the crowds that have followed, despite showing miracles, feeding 5,000 of them with 5,002 fishes, the crowd still didn't recognise who Jesus was. He was gaining a following, but you know what? Jesus wasn't getting caught up in all the attention and allowing the crowd to sway him from his mission. He knew his purpose. So when on Palm Sunday the crowds cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus doesn't get caught up in the moment because he knows what's to come. And those who are cheering, those who are celebrating his arrival, are probably going to get disappointed during the week and they're going to turn against him. You know, Bible commentators often know that, that some of those people in that great crowd would, would have been cheering for him, screaming, shouting, Hosanna, and then at the end of the week shouting, crucify him, demanding that Pilate free the criminal Barabbas instead of Jesus. And if you read the accounts of Holy Week in the Gospels, you know, they, they show a number of ways in which Jesus confounded and disappointed Jerusalem that week. He came, they expected him, this was, this was the Messiah coming. He's come on a donkey, which is a bit strange for a, for a ruler, but, you know, it's, he's come in peace, we'll, we'll go with that. But let's look briefly at what people wanted, and then highlight three of the things that Jesus said and did. And you'll see why Hosanna became crucifying. In calling Jesus the son of David and he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jerusalem, Jerusalem as we said, they, they were saying, we believe that this is our deliverer. He's come, we're going to be re-established, we're going to be reborn as a nation. We're going to get victory over these Romans. We've had enough of them. We're going to re-establish you know, this kingdom here, this legitimate crown in Jerusalem. Because Jesus had talked in kingdom language, hadn't he? He talked about his kingdom, establishing his kingdom. And now he was going to deliver them, same as they had Moses before, Joshua, Gideon, David, other people who'd thrown off the oppressors, foreign invaders. And now Jesus was here and he was going to do the same. That's not what happened though, is it? What did actually happen after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem? Well, the first incident, we got evidence. Jesus goes crazy in the temple. The people of Jerusalem wanted Jesus to conquer Caesar. But instead, what does he do? He walks into the temple and he starts overturning tables. I won't throw it there. He throws a bunch of people out of the temple. Those who bought and who sold. He wouldn't even allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So if you bought any uh, material possessions in with you today, then can you leave please and take them with you? He started to disrupt their way of life, didn't he? He would have upset people. 
You know, there's some writers who perhaps almost present Jesus as some kind of consumer champion here, that he was objecting to people charging exorbitant prices in the temple, the dodgy dealings of the money changers. And while I'm sure Jesus did object to people being exploited, that wasn't his motivation. His motivation was to bring the focus in God's house back to God, to stop it from being the den of robbers that we read about, to stop them from robbing God of worship. So picture this. You've welcomed Jesus. Woo, yeah, Hosanna, he's coming. He's here. And next thing you know, he's messing things up in church. He's throwing things out. You know, you can't just turn up anymore and buy your dove to sacrifice. You've got a plan. You've got to buy it in advance. You can't just turn up anymore and get it. But maybe, 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 you know, you're, you're a hardcore follower. You're a true believer. And, you know, these actions are a bit odd, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt on this one. You know, perhaps the, the money changers, they were fronts for the fundraising arm of the Roman Empire. So we'll, we'll give them the benefit of that one, maybe. But the second incident is Jesus fails to stand up to Caesar. Pharisees ask if it's lawful for them to pay taxes to Rome. Now what were the crowd expecting? They're expecting Jesus to say, no, in fact I'm going to go down to Rome now and I'm going to teach them a lesson that they'll never forget. I'm going to take Caesar down. He's not having any more money from us. What did Jesus reply? Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God. I don't think people expected that reply, did they? But Jesus is making a clear statement with his answer. He's saying to people publicly, I'm not going to confront Caesar. That's not what I'm here for. That's not the purpose of my mission. He wasn't going to confront Caesar in the way that Moses confronted Pharaoh. Because Jesus knows that he's got a bigger opponent to deal with. And the crowds don't understand. The third incident is Jesus says he's not restoring Israel at this time. And actually, it's not a good message for for the incoming leader to bring, but things are going to get worse. While they're speaking of the temple, how it was decorated with stones and full of offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the day will come when they will not be left here. One stone upon another that will be not be thrown down. You know, he then spoke to his disciples privately and he gave a, a, a broader picture of how things were going to get much worse for Jerusalem. And what he said somehow got overheard. We don't know whether it was gossip or whether it was just overheard. The Bible doesn't say, but during this trial, false testimony was given about how Jesus said that he'd destroy the temple himself, how they misrepresented what he taught about his body would be torn down and raised in three days. So if people started getting this, they're thinking, actually, this Jesus, you know, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe he's not, maybe he's not the Messiah that we thought he was after all. Because when they're talking about destruction of the temple, that's serious business. You know, and people had expected him to come and that he was going to go into battle. It was going to be, they saw it in military terms. It was going to be a military victory, not defeat. But, you know, actually, we've had him throw things over in the temple. We've had him cast the money changes out. Now he's talking about the end of the temple, taking it down to the foundation stones. Why is, he, why is he not saying that he's going to tear down Herod's temple? 
Why is he not saying that, you know, we're going to go and tear down Caesar's palace? This wasn't what the people had signed up for. But see how Jesus didn't allow that crowd on Palm Sunday to sway him from his mission. The praise and adulation that came his way as he arrived in Jerusalem. Just think about it for a moment. In human terms, if that were you, as you all come today, you walk into, turn into your street and all your neighbours are lying in the, the road. Yay, Rachel's home. Yay. Lisa's home. Andre's back. Woo. Joe, can you go away again, please? <laughs> Imagine how you'd feel if you got that adulation, that recognition, that praise. Well, the temptations be thinking, hang on, this is all right. This is quite nice, this. We could be onto something here. Um, may, maybe you just need to rethink. Maybe you could do more, actually, if all these people are on my side. Uh, did I find, are they finally getting who I am here? But Jesus knew his mission. He knew that, actually, the vast majority of the crowd still didn't know who he was. He was the prophet from Nazareth, and that was it. You know, we know, we know that some of Jesus' followers did remain with him, some secretly. We know that he appeared to hundreds after his resurrection. And the book of Acts tells us, doesn't it, about the 120 believers. But that week in between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, I think we have to accept that Jesus probably lost a lot of followers because they didn't know who he was. They didn't really know who he was. Actions and words over that course of Holy Week demonstrated time and time again that he wasn't who they thought he was, who they led to believe he was. He wasn't coming to do what they thought he would do. And this morning, as we come to a conclusion, you know, sometimes can we make those same mistakes that the crowd did in Jerusalem? Can we get dragged along with groups of people, swayed by the crowd, and miss who Jesus really is? Can we see him sometimes as the Santa Claus Jesus? The one who we ask and he gives us presents? The motivational speaker Jesus? We're feeling a bit rough, I'll, I'll just need a little touch and I'll be alright. Or the politician Jesus? You know, if we, if we go with a bigger crowd, we can miss the bigger picture. And this morning, can I encourage you, every one of us, we need to know Jesus for ourselves. Not the message that the crowd gives us and assumes about who he is. We all need to know Jesus for ourselves. How do we do it? Through prayer, through study, through reading the Bible, through meeting with one another, through sharpening each other up. We don't get to know Jesus just by coming here on a Sunday and leaving it at that and coming and accepting, accepting everything that we see or hear without a question. Now this morning, let's ask for the revelation like the shepherds got. Yeah? Now they got a message from a crowd who knew who Jesus was. Let's pray that we get that revelation today. Let's not be like the majority of the crowd who didn't really know Jesus. They didn't get his plan. Because it's obvious they didn't get his plan because they were left disappointed. And Jesus, if you really know him, never disappoints, does he? Jesus never disappoints. He never lets us down. 
But you know what? The risk is if we don't really know him, if we just go on the bits which we hear others talking about, if we don't really know him, then it can set our expectations slightly off course. And we could end up feeling disappointed and misled. For example, we believe that Jesus heals, don't we? But at the same time, we know that not everyone is healed. Everyone's not healed immediately, maybe. The Apostle Paul struggled with the thorn in his flesh. And at the end of the day, the reality is that we are mortal. We're mortal, aren't we? At some point, our bodies are going to fail on us. The thing is, if, if all we've heard is that Jesus heals and little snippets like that, and we're left not healed or we're left not healed yet and we're waiting, the risk is that we can become disappointed, isn't it? If we don't really know who he is. Oh, Jesus was supposed to heal and he hasn't. This isn't the Jesus I know, who I was led to believe. Or alternatively, we're here and we're not healed and we're left feeling inadequate in some way. You know, Jesus sees none of us here as inadequate today. He sees us as his sons and daughters. He's perfect heirs. You know, I can't, we can't explain what people go through sometimes. Why people go through certain things. But if you really know Jesus, then you trust that actually he's got the best for you in, in, in mind. He understands what's best for us at all times. Even if we can't or we don't understand. You know, we say, don't we, we aim to be a community with Jesus at the centre. But really that means each one of us individually has to have Jesus at the centre of our lives. And that we all individually seek to know Jesus in his fullness, in his true majesty and sovereignty. But you know what, we don't do it in isolation. And we should support and encourage each other as a church. But also, there's another crowd. And we've taken a break from Hebrews just over this Easter period, but there's another crowd referred to in Hebrews 12, which come up on the screen now. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, the joy that was you, that was me. The joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. A quote that I found says, we are surrounded by the saints of the past in a unique way. It's not that the faithful who have gone before us are spectators to the race we run, Rather, it's a figurative representation that means we ought to act as if they were in sight and cheering us on to the same victory in the life of faith that they obtained. We are to be inspired by the godly examples these saints set during their lives. These are those whose past lives of faith encourage others to live that way too. This morning, know Jesus for yourself, not the version of the crowd. Know Jesus for yourself. Know your true purpose in him. 
like Jesus knew what his purpose was from the Father. Know your true purpose as well so that you're not swayed by the crowd if you start to receive recognition or adulation or praise. Stay grounded. And don't hide in the crowd today. You know, don't hide and just sit there and take it all in. Step out and take your own steps in your own journey today. Gemma said earlier that, you know, if you don't know Jesus yet, then come and see one of us. Come and speak to one of us. I'll go a little bit further if I may. If you do know Jesus, but maybe you feel actually, I've just been going along with the crowd. I've just been going along with, with what other people are saying. And actually, I need to know this Jesus really is. I want to go into that next level of relationship with him. Come and see us. Come and see us at the end. Don't let it go by. Don't face a week where he's like, well, I thought and not know who this Jesus really is. You can really know him today. You can really know him today. So we just pray before we sing our last song. Lord, we, we thank you for your obedience in, in Lord, coming to earth and living a blameless life and just doing the will of your Father that we could be reconciled to you. Lord, how you set time away from the crowds, how you didn't allow yourself to be swayed by the recognition and the praise that people were wanting to, to foist on you. Lord, I pray for each one of us here that, Lord, we do truly know you, that we do truly, truly know what you went through when you went to the cross, what it meant. It wasn't to further yourself in any way. It wasn't to, to raise your profile. It was to reconcile us back to our Heavenly Father. And you gave it all for us, for each and every one of us here today. Lord, help us this Holy Week now as we go through, just to, to reflect on who you really are.